Hi, folks. I'm Tom Ivester, an alcoholic. Hey, Tom. Uh, finally got to kiss the bride. I thought I was going to have to kiss Mike there for a minute. <laughs> uh, congratulations, and I hope you guys will, will, will truly have a happy life. And uh, thanks very much for, a, for an excellent conference. I've thoroughly appreciated being here so far, and will the rest of it. Uh, it's just been great, been great fun. Not often that I'm on a pro well, not too unusual, but this time for sure, all of the speakers on the program this weekend are good friends. And it's amazing how this gets to be like a reunion when we get together. We have to be careful. We'll wind up having our own little conference, you know, <laughs> all, all by itself. And so that's a treat. And I, I want to thank you for the conference. Uh, I want to thank you for... I also want to thank uh, Betsy for the, the way she handled that committee deal. You know, sometimes that's a drag. Yeah, because you just sort of go through this monotone of this one did this and this one did that. She did that with genuine appreciation. And I imagine that she reflected the appreciation of all of us who've enjoyed how smoothly and effectively this conference ran. And those people, I guess Betsy recognized they did the work. And she's to, she may not be an active Yankee anymore, but she's still got that Yankee con in her. She, she knows how to do it. Now, that was a truly, truly uh, heartfelt thing, and I, I appreciate you hearing that. I do appreciate the conference. I appreciate conferences because they do tend to be energizing points. They're points where we can sort of get the spirit going. They're also a great place to work on relationships and, uh, and to have our families grow, and, and that is just such a neat thing to be here. Lots of great friends here. I, I've been in Georgia so much I almost pay taxes down here. <laughs> North Carolina wishes I'd pay them up there. <laughs> <laughs> My friend Joe, that, uh, whom I respect most highly, kept me from being the oldest rat in the barn tonight. <laughs> it's kind of a mixed blessing when you're the oldest rat, isn't it, Joe? Yeah, because you, you, you don't like to be there. I mean, you won't want to be around, but you don't want to be the oldest guy. I, I was on a program, just, I'm going to visit just a few minutes, and then we'll get down to some serious grunting and groaning. But, uh, the, uh, I was on a, a program down in uh, Louisiana a couple, couple years ago, and this is the first time this has happened in 25 years. I was the youngest speaker in the pro, on the program both in age and in sobriety. The one that, that, the closest one to me replaced Joe. Joe. Joe was ill at that time and couldn't come. My God, I wouldn't have even been in the same bracket with him if it hadn't been for that. I never carried so much coffee in my life. <laughs> they called me the rookie. All <laughs> so, it's a mixed blend. It's an interesting thing that happens as as we stay sober in Alcoholics Anonymous. When I when I came in, I was in the youngest two percent of members of Alcoholics Anonymous, and lo and behold, now I'm in the oldest two percent of members of Alcoholics Anonymous. So you say here, remarkable things happen, don't they? And it is really and truly great to be here, and I do appreciate the conference. I. I, uh, I, I want to just comment just a minute on, on the themes, and maybe it'll lead in a little bit. I don't know exactly where I'll go, but maybe it'll lead in a little bit to where I, where I would 
kind of like to put some some weight tonight. I, now I'm going to tell my story, but I really do want to talk some about this theme. I, you, you, I'm not sure what the theme is. It's either happy, joyous, and free, that's up here, or on the program it says we absolutely insist on enjoying life. Uh, either one of them, would, which is it, John? You all know it. you got 40 years, guy. you got to know. <laughs> what is <laughs> He got defrocked. Either one of those are, t- are, are likely themes. And both of them just kind of provoke a little something. It's interesting to me where you find those in the book. Anybody know where you find those phrases in the book? What chapter is that? How about that? You'd think it'd be when you quit drinking, wouldn't it? Wouldn't you think it'd be back step three or something? No, it isn't. It's when we finish the steps, when we get through the portion of working with others, and it's when we get into practicing principles in all of our affairs. Really interesting to me where those things come in because sometimes we get to thinking we party our way into sobriety. And we giggle our way into sanity. Doesn't quite work that way, does it? Now what we do is start practicing these principles and we absolutely insist on, on enjoying life. Not on enjoying a funny joke. On enjoying life. Not on enjoying a honeymoon in Hawaii. That's life. And life's sometimes great, sometimes bad, sometimes mediocre. But that whole principle is built around the idea of enjoying life as it comes. This week, don't want to start on much of a downer, but this week, my sister had a, a stroke, and uh, I was in position to be able to go up and, uh, well, I made myself be in position to be able to go up and be with her. And it never fails when I'm able to respond to a situation like that. I experience the deepest gratitude I've experienced for a long time. Every time that happens. Now, nobody enjoys that, do they? But how tremendously important when we see these principles come to play. She and I, she's better, by the way. And she and I uh, enjoyed a kind of a strange thing that we folks laugh about. We talked about a time some 45 years ago that I came to the predecessor of that hospital, to that same sister, when she was, I thought, terminal with cancer. And I was thrown out of that hospital drunk. What a difference a few years makes. And so that's where those principles come. How do we enjoy life? You know, it's been my experience that great joy comes when the foundation's in place. And when the principles are in place and we can freely laugh and not just hysterically laugh. And so I want to kind of frame it a little bit around that way a little bit. So let me get going. I'm going to, I'm going to go at it hard and fast. I always have to tell people from up north when I'm going at it hard and fast. They think I've gone to sleep. That's the best I can do. I, <laughs> I talk slow, think slow. And, yeah, they're, yeah, I'm an alcoholic. Let me frame one other thing, just one other thing. 
I'd like many of my buddies here this weekend, and probably many of you. I, I do a lot of talking in Alcoholics Anonymous. And that can be a good thing or it can be a bad thing. If, if I'm not careful, if I don't watch it, I'll get sort of flat. And I'll sort of get kind of parrot-like. You know, so that I just stand up and I automatically start on automatic pilot almost. Just start in somewhere and it's just sort of a mechanical thing. And an AA talk that becomes manic, mechanical or canned, I think borders on useless. And so every once in a while, I like to remind myself of what it is that we gather for. So why are we here tonight? What is it that we're dealing with? Now, I'd, yeah, I really was kind of reluctant to uh, break up that party with an AA meeting. That was a great deal. We were having a ball. Good time. Then here comes Sherry wanting to pray. <laughs> Paul of Gloom falls over the group. <laughs> and then here comes the deacon going to go at it with a whole bunch of stuff. It, but let me frame just a little bit about who we are, maybe as much for my benefit as yours. What brings us together tonight, in my judgment, is an absolute killer illness called alcoholism. A killer illness, and that's not an exaggeration in my view. A killer illness in the sense that I'm told and I believe that 95% of the people in this world who have alcoholism die of it tragically at the average age of 52. Really interesting to me, when I came into AA, the average life expectancy of an alcoholic was 52 years. Forty-two years later, with the advent of treatment and research and all kinds of understanding of alcoholism, that life expectancy is 52 years. We haven't touched it much. We haven't really even started to penetrate the deadly quality of alcoholism. Most of the folk who have it die of it tragically early. Think of who we are. We, we are folk who have dodged a bullet that's unbelievable. In its, in its severity. And here we sit with at least an opportunity to grab that brass ring. Most folks never do. Now let me push that just one step further. The odds are that when somebody comes in this program and decides to give it an honest shot, the odds are about 50-50 that they'll make it. That's the best we've ever been in the history of Alcoholics Anonymous. Ever. Right, Joe? We have never done better than that on our best day. And that doesn't talk about people who show up with a wristband taking a look at it. It doesn't include people who are drummed in just under the pressures of whatever drove them, which includes most of us, it includes those of us who have decided to give it a try. That we've got the problem and we want to do something about it. And when we get to that point, we've got about a 50-50 chance. It's a killer illness. I absolutely believe that it would be a better prognosis for heart disease than it is for alcoholism. Most forms of cancer than it is for alcoholism. Leprosy has got a better readout 
than alcoholism. So what brings us together is a killer illness. And it's not something that yields to superficiality. It's not something that yields to emotion. And so I'd kind of like to just frame it around a little bit to get me thinking and to remind me that there's no such thing as, a, as a, an unimportant meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. I believe, and I'm absolutely convicted of this, that in every meeting somebody's life may well depend on what happens in that meeting. I've seen too many where that is exactly the case and seen the tragedies that can happen. And so I just want to be mindful of that as we go, go into talking about what we, what we hear about. Now, I'm an alcoholic. All kinds of theories about alcoholism. And probably everybody in this room has got a theory. Just as right as anybody else's. There's all kinds of them all over the world. One that I particularly like is that it's a characteristic of alcoholics that I particularly like. It's, it's a notion that we are not quite like other people. Now, certainly that's true to, to some extent. <laughs> but we tend to be different, according to some, in a special way. We tend to be just a little bit sharper than the average cat. <laughs> we're, we're a little more creative, a little more imaginative, a little more quick on the uptake, a little more innovative, a little bolder, a little brasher, a little more idealistic. <laughs> heard that ever since I've been in A. I have never heard that anywhere except in AA. <laughs> but I like that. I like that deal. <laughs> and you know, there's enough around to give some credence to that. I'll give you a couple of I'm one. <laughs> I went in the military as a 16-year-old kid. I mean, just a kid. Scared to death, never been anywhere in my life for any serious purpose. Here I am in the Army, 1948. Big Smoke was just over, number two. Nothing in there but leftovers from the Second World War. God knows, raunchy crowd. <laughs> went through training, and I'm just a little old doughhead kid from North Carolina, born in South Carolina, for God's sake, and grew up in the cotton mills of North Carolina. And here I am off down there in the United States Army, acting like a man. Didn't even shave. <laughs> well, I did. I hated to be the only guy that wasn't shaving, so I did. Didn't need to. And uh, finished training, and I'm telling you, I was an eight ball. I made Beetle Bailey look like Soldier of the Year. <laughs> Went through training in Fort Jackson with a thousand men, finished up, and at the end of it, they announced that they had been watching. <laughs> and they had picked out five men who showed exceptional leadership ability, and they were going to send them to leadership training and into OCS to become officers and gentlemen. And they started calling the name, and they called mine. <laughs> they called my name, I said, huh? <laughs> Man, I knew I was an eight ball. They did too, shortly thereafter. 
I went to the first place and I was in a smaller pool and therefore more visible. <laughs> it lasted a hot minute. And then I had a marvelous military career. I'd had visions of being in Europe or Hawaii watching for submarines or somewhere. I spent my military career in Alaska and the Aleutian Islands. <laughs> Exotic duty. Garden of Rock. In the, in the middle of the Bering Sea, standing there waiting to shoot a Russian. I wasn't mad at nobody. You know, and I'm out there guarding that stupid thing. Well, the only shot in the course of that idiocy, and it's all I could ever, I, no insult to the soldiers, but I swear, I never made, never, none of it ever made sense to me. Wear that iron hat when it's 110 degrees, marching in sand past 10,000 vehicles. And we're walking. <laughs> Carrying something on my back weighs 100 pounds, and I don't even know what's in it or care. God. I got drunker than a billy goat as soon as I could and stayed that way as long as I could. And the only newsworthy part of that is that that's somewhere in the middle of that madness I developed alcoholism. Now, I, I've read a lot of stuff about alcoholism. There are a lot of theories about it. And I could trouble you with a whole bunch of stuff about all the causation, and I do think some of it's important. That's why we have inventory in this thing. But I'm not going to get into that, that that much tonight. Just suffice it to say, I was just a kind of a screwed up kid, got in there. Oh, I was going to tell you one other example of that. Let me finish that one. 38 months after I went in, I wound up at OCS. Now, isn't that evidence that dreams come true, that you know, the right will prevail and good guys do surface? I was at OCS, and I was Beetle Bailey. My job was yard bird. The last demotion that I had in the military, the man said, you are an E minus one. <laughs> There's no such rank. He said, the next time you get promoted, you'll be at the bottom. Well, that didn't happen. I, I, got, I got thrown out uh, 38 months of noble service, and I got thrown out at the age of 20 with an undesirable discharge for alcoholism. Same guy that started out to be an officer. You, you see, see what I'm talking about? That, that perception that we are, and there is that perception. There's a belief that the best mechanic in town is the drunk mechanic if you can catch him sober. Those of us in this room who know better believe that still. Best painter in the world is a drunk. Well, if you didn't get a drunk painter, who would you get? <laughs> <laughs> when I got thrown out of the military, I'll give you one other example. It won't be all the story, but it'll be at least some of it. When I got thrown out of the military, I started a sales career in the city of Charlotte, our largest city. If we hadn't been such teetotalers, we would have been the Atlanta of the southeast. But we didn't want to drink up there. They didn't, I did. <laughs> The year I was thrown out of the military for alcoholism at the age of 20, that year I was named Salesman of the Year in a company in the largest city in North Carolina and fired the same year. 
that was a characteristic. You always had that sort of read that people took that I was a cut above. Yeah, I was the kind of guy that usually got hired for a better job than I was looking for. I'd go in just looking for a job, and they'd want me to run the place. Jesus. And my pattern was always to go in and start up here and work my way down. <laughs> and ultimately out, you know. <laughs> Never had a raise in my life on merit. On merit. If they, I, the only raise I ever got is if they raised a minimum wage, I'd get one with the rest of the world. Well, that was it. I, I don't know what that is. I don't know if it's the charm that Fulton Arsler wrote about. Uh, it's something. I, I, I suspect it's that sort of, it's two things. One of them, I think, is that sort of instinctive, manipulative quality that some of us have. <laughs> I think that's part of it. And the other is that, you know, I was always playing catch-up. Yeah, I had a boss tell me one time I was the best employee he ever had in his entire business career, three days a week. <laughs> and the rest of the time, I was a mystery. And I had to work twice as hard as anybody else to stay even. And I think that's where that perception comes from, that alcoholics are such world beaters. Hell, I had to be a world beater. I was history. And so that's the way I was. I... And so in the course of all of that stuff, I developed a, a severe case of alcoholism. The very, the very best I could tell is somewhere along in my 18th year, while I was up in Alaska, I don't think that caused it. I do think, as they say, it exacerbated the problem. <laughs> I think it sped up the process about 10 years. Now, you can't stay that drunk that long without something breaking. And something broke. And uh, so my, my alcoholism changed, I, 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 my drinking changed. We refer to it as crossing a line. Now, I was always a bad drunk. I was a bad drunk before I was an alcoholic. But something happened that I didn't see till I was sober for a good while, that at some point it was as if the thing did a 180. And I started to drink with no control. I started to drink with an absence of control. If I started to drink, God only knew where I would wind up. And the most important thing that I know about alcoholism is that I've got it. That's the most important thing. Know that something happened to me in that 18th year. I started to drink with, uh, with no rhyme or reason. Started to do what we call squirrel cage drinking where it looked like I drank because I drank. I drank myself into a jackpot, and the only solution that made any sense whatsoever was to drink again. And so I set up a pattern of very bizarre behavior. Ray Val, who's experienced this, told me I ought to start time what time I started. Now, I know as tall as you are, you know. I guess whatever he said, I ain't going to argue with him. Man, taller than a tree. Well, we'll quit. I'll run out of breath here in a minute. That pattern set up, and let me tell you what the gist of it was that really means something to me. All of the circumstances don't matter that much. What matters to me is that no matter what circumstance occurred, my life became a pattern of just just absolute fiascos and, and, and misadventures. 
I started a pattern of waking up in bizarre places, in bizarre circumstances, in jail with sickening regularity, in psycho wards, because my behavior just looked peculiar to people, looked pretty good to me, but other people frowned on how I acted. Go to, go to drinking in one state, wake up in another state with no recollection of how I got there. Started drinking in Detroit one night and came to my senses in a cornfield in North Dakota. <laughs> God, you've got to be drunk to go to North Dakota. <laughs> That's bizarre. Yeah. And, and, and so that pattern, just, just physically looking at it, is, is, is weird enough. But what started to happen was that whenever, almost invariably, when I would wake up in the, the, the last circumstance, whatever it was, my response would be basically the same. It would always be that sort of frantic thing when you wake up after a blackout. And I'll tell you, I don't think there's anything more terrifying in the annals of alcoholism than blackouts. They have absolutely no humor for about ten years. And then you, know, you wake up and you look at the circumstance and somebody says, for God's sakes, how could you do that? How could you do it? And you've got no answer. No answer. Somebody says to you, how could you miss your daughter's birthday? What do you say? How could you just leave a good job? How could you take the only money we've got and blow it? The only answer that you could possibly come up with is, I don't know. It just happened. It just happened. And that explained my behavior. And I would always wake up in one of those things, go through the panic, get it together with where I was, and then start the moral beating. Well, you've done it again. You're just no good. You're worthless. You have no responsibility, no discipline. You're just a worthless character. And then would follow that thrilling stuff of contemplating alternatives. God, how many times I've awakened in some flea bag or on a curb or beside a wrecked car that was mine, in some goofy circumstance, and thank God, why don't you just end it all? Everybody would be better off. And I meant that. How many times? And I'll guarantee you there is not one iota of social, social drinking associated with that kind of suicidal thinking. Or why don't you just quit pretending and just give up and be gone? Just go away. Just disappear somewhere. <coughs> Or do you suck it up and make up one more lie, one more excuse, one more plea for forgiveness, one more new start, and go back and try again? How many times? And what that constituted to me, I didn't recognize for a number of years in AA, was a place in the book that I used to think Bill waxed a little eloquent when he referred to that interval as pitiful, incomprehensible demoralization. Nancy used that term Friday night. Pitiful, incomprehensible demoralization. I really thought that was overkill. Till I started to see with clear eyes that's exactly what it was. Not once, not twice, but a hundred times or more. And never once understood the implications of that. I would take a look around 
go through those things, and then I would reach out to the only solution that I knew. And that was that squirrel cage drinking, of drinking my way out of that same mess again, on and on. And it wound up eight years after I started drinking. That kind of stuff just just resulted in my, for some reason, I guess, because all the drunks went up there, going up to, uh, to Michigan. And I spent the last years of my drinking up in Detroit and, uh, and primarily in Flint in, in Michigan. The last year that I spent was up on, uh, in Flint. I worked in that town until my reputation got in front of me, and in the last year that I, that I, that I uh, lived there, I made a little pretense of trying to, any serious effort at, at, uh, at working. I'd come up for air once in a while and get some piece of a job and hang on and exist or whatever, but not for very long. I was, I was a gone guy. Uh, my reputation was in front of me. Nobody would hire me in that town except for some nothing kind of job. A keen alcoholic like mine, I had a full-time job one time pulling rusty nails out of wood. Got fired from that job. <laughs> God, what a blow. And my most, my most common address during that period was a place called the Rialto Theater. Not because like movies, it just happened to be the cheapest room in town. 35 cents, you could get in out of the cold. How many times I've spent the night in there, had, had my shoes stolen in there. Don't remember, don't remember clearly, but I'm confident I stole somebody's back. You know, that, I mean, that's the way it worked. You know, I did a lot of things during that period. I'm not a gangster. I'm not a predatory criminal or anything like that. But when you live in that kind of a jungle, you live by the laws of the jungle or you don't live. And so I did a lot of things that the law would call criminal. I don't really consider them criminal per se. It was a matter of, it was the food chain. And whoever was friskiest on a given day would eat or drink. And then the next day the other guy would drink. And that was the way it was. I'm not looking for anybody to make amends. That's just the way it worked. And I'm confident I would have drunk myself to death had I not been brought to a stop in, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a very tragic way, you know, my, my story, it, it does, as most of you know, include great tragedy, not in terms of what happened to me, but in terms of what I did, because what I did, unfortunately, was stayed out there too long and wound up doing the kind of thing that I know every alcoholic in this room, in this world, is feared doing, and thank God most don't. Most drunks' worst nightmares are just bad dreams. But for some, the nightmares are very real, and I was one of those. I woke up in jail one morning in Flint, no novelty. Been there many, many times. I, I was a regular, knew everybody that worked there, most everybody that, that was locked up there. And I assumed that I was there for the same as always, either drunk or just some street behavior, you know. And, and so I assumed it was something like that. And after I was awake a while, the uh, jailer came by. I knew him quite well, and I, and I said, uh, when can I get out? Normally, 10 o'clock in the morning, you could, you could, uh, you could get out. And uh, that's normally what he would say. And this time he said, I hope never. Walked off. Had not a clue what he was talking about. And then some of the other guys in the tank told me that the night before, I'd been driving somebody's car down the main street of that city, and had run down and killed two people. And uh, I'll tell you, I don't care how depraved you are, unless you're totally depraved, 
those kinds of things are difficult to accommodate. The mind is a funny thing. It protects itself. You know, it'll only accept what it can handle. And my response was to, to push it away and pretend no, 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 and then gradually accepted the truth. The only time I'd ever been in jail, didn't try to get out, and then somebody contacted my folks. And my mother and that sister who had a stroke this week made what was to be my mother's last trip to anybody's jail, get her little boy out. wasn't her first one, but it was to be her last one. She died 29 years later with a heart full of gratitude for a, a program that had given her a son of whom she was extremely proud. I will always be grateful for that fact. You know, I've, I've done a lot of stuff in Alcoholics Anonymous over the years, and, and that one thing that I've just said is worth everything I've ever done ten times over. Ten times over. Well, I, I didn't know how to tell them I didn't want out, that I was afraid to get out, ashamed to get out, I couldn't face anybody. I knew I wouldn't drink. You know, if you, if you get into serious enough trouble, those who do not understand the, the profound quality of alcoholism, how, my God, how could you drink? How could you drink after something like that? And that's exactly what I thought. I knew nothing about alcoholism. I knew I wouldn't drink. The guilt was too great. And a day and a half later, of course, I drank. And for the next, from July to November, I drank literally like nobody I've ever seen. And then November the 19th of 56, I had what I hope and pray was my last drink. Finished a bottle of gin, uh, went to court, knew it was a, to be a one-way trip, and it was. I was charged with manslaughter, tried on the charge. I entered a plea of stand mute. I'd never heard of that plea. All the times I've been in court, all I did is plead guilty. And my plea was to stand mute. And I thought, what an eloquent plea for a blackout tragedy. What an eloquent plea. What can you say? I couldn't even tell them what I'd done. They had to tell me what I was done. I was, of course, found guilty. And that day sent us to a max of 15 years in the Michigan State Penitentiary at, uh, at Jackson. And uh, now I knew that I was, I was, I knew that I was going away. But I remember clearly the day that sentence was passed, I had an instinctive, very, I guess, natural reaction of fear. But at the same time, the most real sense of relief I'd ever known because I knew it was over. And the next day I walked into that place, resigned to my fate, absolutely convinced I would never come out of there alive. And I truly believe that. Jackson Prison, I don't mean to, to get into any expose of prisons. You, you read about them. Uh, I, I'm, I've gotten a little more than an untrained mind about prisons now, and, and um, I would rate it as the second or third worst penitentiary in the United States to this day. Lousy place. 6,000 people, so to speak, locked up there the day I walked in, and uh, I knew that I would never survive that. Yeah, and I'll guarantee you, if I tried to get through on street behavior like I had out on the, uh, uh, in, in Flint, Detroit, uh, I would have been eaten for breakfast, and I have absolutely no illusions about that. But I'm here to tell you that this program truly makes a difference because I left there three and a half years later. They, they offered me an opportunity to leave, and I left there unmarked physically, mentally, and truly changed in a profound kind of way with a new, new and different life. And I wasn't looking for one. Let me tell you what happened. Of course, when I, when I think about what happened, you know, it, it certainly isn't a, it, it isn't a compartment of what we were like. Eh? And then that quits, and then all at once something over here says, here's what happened. It's all kind of a thing. Eh? And what happened included 
Yeah, I thought about it many times. All of those points where I was talking about pitiful and comprehensible demoralization, those are what we call bottom. Bottom's not a one-time thing or a fixed thing or a specific thing. Bottom's those times when it's all done. We're beat. We're absolutely whipped. And I responded to the only solution I know. I've often wondered what would have happened if somebody had, had appeared at the right time and said, hey, try this. I'll never know, of course. But those were all bottoms. And here was another one, and I'm sitting in the penitentiary. Mighty sick young man, mighty isolated young man. And one day I was called out of a cell for an interview with a social worker. Guy talked with me about my drinking. Many people had done that, and I always got well-intended but useless advice like, why don't you quit, or don't be so stupid, or don't drink so much. It was well-intended, but totally useless advice. I had not a clue about alcoholism, nor had I ever interacted with anybody who did, except shrinks and docks and keepers and stuff like that. I'd, I'd, never, I'd never encountered anybody who had any insight or awareness of how you deal with this problem. Never heard of it. AA was not unknown back then. It was to me. But we had about 125,000 members back, back then, and, uh, but I'd never heard of it. This guy talked with me, exclaimed about my alcoholism, said something I'd never heard before. He said, we have an AA group here at the institution. I think you better go. And it was just a flat observation. It wasn't an order. I didn't have to go. Just a flat observation. And I walked into my first meeting. I didn't have any real yearning desire to join. I didn't. I, I, the man said, you ought to go. And I honestly believe the only reason I went that, have you been to the point that you're just so beat that you got no, no, you can't even muster an argument. Yeah, I was just beat. I, I mean, I was absolutely beat. And that guy said that, and I just sort of shuffled over on, on February the second to my first, first meeting, not just like you, not knowing, uh, uh, no idea what to expect. Walked in and sat down in the recovery group of Alcoholics Anonymous. It was a group 300 strong. And I'll tell you today, it's one of the finest AA groups I have ever visited in 42 years. Excellent group. Did an excellent job of carrying out the primary purpose of helping alcoholics understand this logical design for a living that we call Alcoholics Anonymous. Great job. I'll always be grateful. That'll always be my home group. I just don't want to be a regular member of it. I go, <laughs> I go, <laughs> I go back... I go back every couple of years to see if my chair's there and make sure I'm not in it, I think. <laughs> and maybe be able to give a little encouragement to the guy who is. And uh, so it, it'll always be an important part of, of my legacy of, of, of who I am as, as a person emerging from a hopeless state of mind and body. And so this guy told me, I walked in that day, 300 strong. One guy spoke to me. Thank God nobody hugged me. I, I, I was not in any condition for hugging, particularly some hairy-legged convict. I just, <laughs> and I sat down and listened to my first meeting. The man who spoke at my first meeting, I thought was a zips suit. I mean, that guy was a... I'd never heard anything like that. All he did is tell his story. But I never heard a drunk tell his own story. And I heard stories, but not your own. And this guy told a story, God knows, I wouldn't have told that to my best friend, drunkest I'd ever been. And here he is telling it to 300 goofy convicts. I thought, what on earth is he doing? And I didn't relate to anything he said. 
None. He was as different from me as anybody I've ever met. We never were the same kind of people, except in our spirit, you know. And, and for some strange reason, I came back the next week. Didn't have any intent of joining Alcoholics Anonymous. Didn't really believe I was an alcoholic. What I really believed that I was a guy. Somebody told me one time that I was a guy with enormous potential, and I never forgot that. <laughs> I had 5,000 people tell me I was the worst scumbag they had ever seen, and I promptly forgot all that. You know, that <laughs> I really thought I was a world beater just waiting to happen. If I could ever get off on the right foot, boy, here we go. Sure. <laughs> and I sat down, listened to this guy tell that story. And the amazing thing is that I was back the next week. Stayed in there for three and a half years, never missed a single meeting, whether it was once a week or once a day. Never missed a single one. Didn't join Alcoholics Anonymous for a long time. Didn't really feel any sense of kinship for a long time. i tell you this. I, I don't know about you, but did, I did not feel happy, joyous, and free. I mean, not only because I was in jail, but I mean, I just didn't feel any happiness, joy, or freedom. Alcoholics Anonymous, to me, was one of the most miserable places I'd ever been. I didn't like it. I, 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 was, I really was a young guy. I was the youngest guy in the group by several years. I was the youngest guy in the penitentiary. They kept me there. I mean, I wasn't such a, a dangerous, predatory character. I was an alcoholic, but my God, looking at my record, anybody would have had little enough sense to put me outside a fence would have needed to have been in one. And so they knew that they better contain me. I spent my entire sentence in a maximum custody penitentiary. And um, so I, 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 this, uh, this guy, anyway, he was, he, was, uh, he, was, he was radically different from me. And, uh, but I kept going back. I kept going back. And now if anybody had explained or asked me to explain what I was looking for, what I was doing, I would have had no answer. I was miserable. Here I'm sitting in a room full of people who said they were like me, but they weren't like me anymore. They were different. When I would listen to these people who visited from the outside, they sounded like Moses to me. They, they were so far removed from where I was. My God, I couldn't a bit more connect with that than a man in the moon. And I tell you this, I, if you if you're experiencing it or have experienced it, I wouldn't need to explain it. Alcoholics Anonymous can be one of the most miserable places on this planet. Now we're essentially a social organization. You know, we're 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 a group of people for whom interaction is a powerful therapy. And if you're somebody who has dealt with extreme isolation as one of your defects of character. What you find is that, that a warm, huggy fellowship is not a reinforcing thing, it's a threatening thing. And that was exactly my experience. I sat in meetings as isolated inside Alcoholics Anonymous as I've ever been. And it took some time before that started to occur. And then something happened. And, and I want to tell you uh, just a little bit about about what happened. I, I've always been a, a kind of Bev was talking about, I've, I've always been a sort of a hungry-minded person. I've uh, always been, even drunk I would read, try to. I'd wake up with a book down on my nose, you know, trying to read, valiant effort. Of course, I could read the same book over and over. It was always new. <laughs> <laughs> 
very cheap reading <laughs> like that. But I've always been that way. I've always been curious and, and a sort of an active mind. And and, uh, and so I read everything we had in AA. And Joe, you were, we didn't have it, about 12 publications all told, including leaflets. It wasn't about 12. You could read it in one night. And so I read everything over and over. Read the book, all that kind of stuff. But it didn't really penetrate. You know, there's an awfully big difference between an intellectual grasp and a way of life, eh? Very, very big difference. And so I was sitting there going through the motion, doing what they seemed to be doing, but nothing really happening to me. I didn't feel any more sense of kinship or belonging than a man to moon. And But there was stuff going on. Some learning was occurring. Some experience was starting to happen. I'm starting to get a little bit conscious of stuff around me. Of course, there were things going on, enough to keep me going. And I'll tell you what the, the turning point was. I really do. Does anybody know what time I started? I, I don't want to quit somewhere in the proximity of... Well, well all right. Yeah, well, I will, but I mean, I'd like to know how much overtime I am. <laughs> no, we'll, we'll, we'll get it pretty down and dirty. What, what, I'll tell you what the turning point was for me. And tonight at dinner, we were talking about something I haven't really thought out. Let me just throw it out. I mean, I've thought about it, but I haven't articulated it very well. And I, but let me throw it out, and I would welcome some conversation about this while we, the time we have left. You know, I, I was referring to a line that we cross in alcoholism, going from, from wild, crazy drinking into uncontrolled and, 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 and hopeless alcoholism. That's a definitive line that we are not like other people, and we ain't going to be. We've moved into a different category. I think that's true in recovery as well that there is a line of demarcation between sort of casual social membership and real recovery. I know people, and you can survive on it, I know people who have never pretended to work any steps. I've had good friends who died sober who never opened a big book. So it's not that you have to do these things, it's a matter of what you're willing to settle for. And if you're willing to settle for survival, certainly you can get by with these things. But I think there's a point of demarcation where solid ground starts to observe, to, 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 to uh, develop. And it has to do, I think, with that thing I was starting out with about the, that, that an unbelievably dangerous percentage that according to those figures, half of us are, will be history. Half of us will be a legacy and half of us will be a sad history sitting here tonight. <laughs> Tremendous thing. And so I think there's a point of demarcation that has to do with something about making this a genuine program of recovery in my life, not in my habit pattern. That it's not something I attend and get fixed at, that it genuinely becomes a way of life that has real change and that will free me from the bondage of myself. And I'll tell you where that started with me. Now, it didn't start from, and it doesn't come from dry. The only thing I ever got from dry was brain dead. I believe I could stay dry for 40 years and I would be as dull and boring and miserable as a carp. Carp. 
carp is an exotic game fish, buddy. <laughs> Dry produces nothing for me. It, it does not let you absolutely insist on enjoying life. I'll guarantee you that. It does not make you happy, joyous, and free. I'll guarantee you that. Yeah, what dry produces is fires and stuff. Well, <laughs> so there's a line, and I'll tell you where my line started to appear. It's not a magical point, just like the other wasn't. But what happened, one day I went to a meeting. Like most things in this program, I never meant to do it. I just kind of get snuck up on I come in here trying to just sort of hang on to my dignity and lack of character. And first thing you know, I get sucked into a new way of life. I tell you, if you've got any notions about hanging on to old stuff, you better get out while you can. Because if you stay here too long, man, they got you. They got you. They'll have the robe on you. You'll be down there hustling quarters at the airport. That's what I thought would happen. Got one left right there. <laughs> but what the point came for me, I went over to this meeting, guy talked about absolutely nothing but four steps. All he talked about. Went in great detail. Read part of it out of the book, stressed the importance of writing it, about how important it was to be stringently honest and fearless as best you could. I'd read about it. I understood the words. I'd read the stuff. I'd looked at the columns and all that stuff. Went back to myself. My address was 39-3-8. <laughs> Is that swanky or what? <laughs> Went back, got in the cell, pulled out the old trusty legal pad, started writing. Now, what I meant to write was a little story about life's cruelty and what a victim of circumstances it was, and I could have been a contender, you know, and all that stuff. <laughs> That's what I meant to write. The founders were wise when they said to write it. Because if you can write the lunacy I was thinking about, man, you really got trouble. And I wrote two lines of what I had in mind, and then I swear to you, with no intent whatsoever, no planning, no preparation, zero. All at once, I had what old Hemingway called that moment of truth, the moment when a person comes face to face with himself. And all at once, the charade was over. And I came to that point. And with no intent whatsoever, all at once, it was just, uh, it was like a dam broke. And I just absolutely poured out all of the stuff that had been trapped in my life forever. My hand literally flew trying to keep up with the race of thoughts. When I got through three pages later, I had just a, a pages of scribble. Not fit for publication, wasn't written for publication. Let me tell you what I had. I had in my hand the most important day's work I have ever done in my entire life. I spent a million dollars in one day. Didn't compare. Didn't compare. Most important day's work I've ever done in my life because that day, I started to cross a line into something different than I had known. I knew that day that I was an alcoholic, period. Not the tragic case, not the young guy, not the whiz kid. No. I knew I was an alcoholic, period. 
I have never doubted that 42 years later, not one second. This program and its recovery is based on the principle of surrender. My issue isn't that I've wised up and decided to do something different. It's that I have admitted at the depth of my soul that I can't drink. I'm an alcoholic. Drinking is not an option. For me, alcoholic insanity is an option. Drinking is not. I have never doubted that for one minute from that day to this started to solidify some ground. The other thing that that day, I knew I didn't want to be like that. And that day, I started to become a real member of Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, I didn't sign anything, but I have never gone to a meeting from that day to this that I haven't gone at it in a different way. I am a member and every meeting I've ever attended, including this one, I know bottom line what I'm here for. Bottom line. And it changed the nature. I was no longer the lost soul in the crowd waiting for the lightning to strike. No. I'm a purposeful alcoholic, understanding the issues of what recovery means. Now, that's not the definitive line because there's more to it. But God, how important. Because what that did was to solidify a foundation. And then it was to open up the pathway of recovery. It was to identify the devils of my life. See, my bondage wasn't to booze. My bondage was to self. My bondage was to disabling defects of character. And I came to understand that I would never be free never be free until I went back and dealt with the things that held me captive. Now, I'm not going to talk about that. I want to talk about just a, a few little things in, 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 in heading for the home stretch. I'm not going to, I'd love to spend a, a couple hours on steps sometime. We'll do that another day. Let me just so I found a way that I like to, uh, to talk about what, 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 what happens as we move forward in this program. You know, here I am, I'm a guy sitting in a maximum custody penitentiary. My options are limited at best. <laughs> Had very few of the things that most people consider critically important. You know, some people say that, that AA in a setting like that is, uh, is, uh, is uh, not quite the same as regular AA. You bet your fanny it's not. You can't afford for it to be like regular AA. The most powerful, most important recovery in Alcoholics Anonymous I've ever known were in those three and a half years where I lived in a condition where man's inhumanity to man was routine, where kindness was considered weakness, sincerity was considered stupidity, love was a dirty word. But I'm here to tell you, this program that we have is more powerful than that illness, and it's more powerful than that environment. That's a fact. There's absolutely nothing in these principles that won't work in a setting like that or any setting. My friend Frankie has a fairly rough condition. Principles made him 
look at me with more than a little love. Powerful. Powerful. Well, that's what started work. I'll tell you what started to put it, the way I'd li I like to deal with it that kind of puts it in a, in a context, in, in a few words. It, it's a place in the forward of the 12 and 12. I didn't see it for years. But one day I saw it and I recognized it for the, the pearl of wisdom that it is. It's about halfway down. It's talking about steps. It says, Our steps are a set of principles, spiritual in their nature. I can't get this just right. I know exactly what it says, but I can't get those semantics just right. A set of principles, spiritual in their nature. Now, here it is. Which, if practiced as a way of life, not worked or studied or seminared or written or educated. No. Now what it says is it? If practiced as a way of life, I have to be an AA member when I wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning. I have to be an AA member practicing these principles on the freeway in Atlanta, Georgia, trying to get to an airport. <laughs> I have to do that with a wife who wakes up that I'm afraid to speak through before 10 a.m. <laughs> if practice is a way of life, one of my mentors used to always say three simple words in every talk he ever made, continue, continue, continue. I don't just admit that I'm powerless, I live with the principle of powerlessness. I had a hell of a fight with booze, but I lost. And I got beat, big time. There is no fight. I'm at peace. Set of principles, practice is a way of life. We'll do two things. doesn't say it this way, but two things. One, we'll expel the obsession to drink. What a great idea. I looked up expel. You know, the only thing I thought about expel is what it did to me in fifth grade the first time. <laughs> And I looked it up. It means to force out, to press out. Good term. Because those principles practice the way of life will press out the obsession to drink. If you read the book, you get a little confused because it makes it sound almost like a lobotomy, you know, that it gets plucked away. You know, the sucker's just gone. <laughs> well, don't get too carried away with that because it ain't gone far, I'll tell you that. <laughs> Read about two more lines and then it'll tell you the real nitty-gritty. What we have is what? Daily reprieve, contingent on the maintenance of our spiritual condition. Practiced as a way of life, maintains the spiritual condition. Yeah, my obsession's gone. I haven't had an obsession for, I think, about 37 years. But if I had one in Atlanta, GA tonight, I would not be surprised nor unprepared. I'm an alcoholic. I didn't used to be. I still am. And all I have to do to revisit obsession is let up on those principles and hello who's knocking at my door. We'll do that, and it has done that. That's a fact. And then it, the other thing it says, will enable the sufferer to become usefully and happily whole. Sound like poetry. But I'm here to tell you that that ain't poetry, my friends. That's an absolute promise. Will enable the sufferer to become happily and usefully whole. 
Uh, uh, yeah, it, it's, it's kind of like I was toying around a little bit with those themes because it's, sometimes we do approach it like it's magic stuff, you know, that if we just sort of come to enough meetings one day, boom, something will happen and you, euphoria sets in and we never look back. <laughs> Wouldn't it that were so? Yeah. It says, well, enable the sufferer to become happily and usefully whole. And how I become happily and usefully whole is by practicing these principles as spelled out in those steps. And they make me happily and usefully whole. They're a product. They're not a mysterious event. They're a product of these principles taking shape so that I become a good employee. I've had one job coming up on 38 years. They're trying to get me to retire, but I can't figure out what for. <laughs> 38 years. Got one wife. We just celebrated to, no next week. Gee. Seemed like we already did. 30, 31 years. I would have bet on 31 days with Marilyn Monroe. 31 years. House. Doggone near paid for. <laughs> Is that sick or what? Have it usually hope. Yeah, and a life that has been replete with experiences beyond imagination. What happens? I'll tell you this. I, I think you have to be awfully careful. I, I don't mean to, to lecture this or sound lecture, but I think that you have to be awfully careful about where we set our goals. Because my experience has been that we usually get them. We usually reach them. And if they're not soundly based in the program of recovery, we almost always court disaster shortly thereafter. What I've found, and believe it or not, I've had some absolutely unbelievable things happen in my life. And almost without exception, they happened with no real manipulation by me. I didn't cause them to happen or seek them to happen or anything else. They just happened in the course of these principles, making me happily and usefully whole. Amazing stuff. I became happily and usefully whole inside a maximum custody penitentiary. Some of the finest service work, Jerry and I were talking about the value of service. And some of the most important service work I ever did in my life was inside of Max McCush Penny. God, what, a, what an opportunity. That's a captive audience if you've ever seen one. <laughs> and I experienced joy. Believe it or not, I experienced the first day of complete freedom I ever knew in my life inside of Max McCush Penitentiary, and that's a fact. First day of real unadulterated joy in my life was inside of my best penitentiary. Finally got out, hit the street, and I'll just tell you this right hurriedly. Many of you are already aware. And folks get on my case big time if I don't share just a, t a tad of this. Because I, I know how important it is to be devoid of hope, you know, to have nothing in, when you think of your future except huge question marks. I know what that means. I know what it means when your vision of life means that maybe I could just get a job. I know what that's like. 
And I know what it's like when you're broke and when you're, when you're unemployed, and I understand those things. So in the interest of anybody who may be on some shaky ground or a little wavering, let me just tell you that, by golly, dreams come true, and there truly is hope. When I hit the ground, all I had was an earnest desire to be a free person physically and a useful citizen. That's all I wanted. Went to work in a mill on the third shift at night, sweeping the floor, literally sweeping the floor. Great floor sweeper, too. I'm telling you, I was the most exuberant guy. I was dangerous with those things. <laughs> Worked there for two years, and in the course of that, I got immediately active the day I hit the street. I got immediately active in prison work. The, day, the, the next week after I was out, the guys in my group told me that they were sponsoring a group, asked me to go over, and I said, God, I'd love to. Will they let me out? And they said, yeah. <laughs> and we, uh, we went. And two months after I was out, I was named outside sponsor of, the, of, of that group. What a tremendous affirmation to be a, not, long, not just from a subject of that, I've still got the ring of the gate in my door. I mean, in my ear, and I'm the outside sponsor of this thing. About the same period, I, one day uh, my, uh, my pro supervisor came to me and said, Tom, you're real active in this AA thing. I said, yes, sir, and it concerned me because I thought he was going to tell me to slow down, and I knew it wouldn't. And he said, wouldn't it help you if you could drive? And I said, yes, sir, but I can't, you know, like he didn't know. And uh, he said, well, let me take a look at that. And then a couple weeks later, he called me and said, meet me at the Sears store uptown, if you would. And I said, okay. Went up. It turned out the Sears store is where they, give, where they have the license agency in, uh, in, in that city back then. And I walked in. This story is absolutely true. I walked in, walked back to my man, and he was there with a fellow I didn't know. And it turned out to be the license agents. They talked with me for a few minutes, visited. Guy never asked me if I could drive, never gave me a test. I didn't even pay for it, but the man handed me a driver's license. <laughs> I have a lot of people tell me must have had political connections, and I surely did. I really did. Sheriff of that county was an intimate acquaintance of mine. <laughs> I'll tell you what I believe is that when God's got work for us to do, the walls come down. And I don't care what the walls are, they come down. Five months after I was out, I was elected DCM. I'd, I'd gone through two years of Michigan State while I was in the penitentiary and by television, and I, I never had learned to spell DCM at, at Michigan State. <laughs> but I wasn't running for office. I didn't know that's the best way to get the job. And I was elected district committeeman in, uh, in, uh, in my district. And, yeah, I'm the same guy who five months earlier was truly wondering if he would ever have one single friend in the world, if it ever be trusted by anybody. And here are the folks nearest and dearest to me, other than my own family, who are asking me to be their trusted servant in 12 cities. What an honor. What an honor. What a tremendous vote of confidence. Two years after I was sitting in my house one day, I got a phone call, state capitol, and uh, I, I, I'd met the fellow one time on the phone, and he said, uh, he said Mr. Ivers, <laughs> and I he said, we are expanding the rehabilitation program in our prison system, and we were wondering if you would consider accepting a position in that. And the first thing I said was, are you sure you know who you're talking to? <laughs> and he assured me that he did, and I, I said, well, my God, man, I'd rather do that than anything in the world. But inside, you know what I said. 
There had never been an ex-con in history hired anything like that, and I knew they weren't going to start with me, but they did. And I was employed as a rehabilitation supervisor in the, uh, a system much like I had just left. And uh, went to work, loved it better than you could imagine. I, I didn't take a vacation for nine years. I just absolutely loved what I was doing, messing with the guys. And uh, I, I uh, did bother to continue with my education, finished up my degree in correctional administration, and, and also bothered to work extremely hard. Uh, I wasn't ambitious. I just was relishing the opportunity to be of that kind of service in such an unbelievable kind of status. And then one day, the, the head of our system uh, called me and asked me to stop by his office. I walked in. He said, Tom, I'd like for you to take an assignment for me. And I said, yes, sir, what? And I really thought he wanted me to pinch hit for him somewhere making a speech. That's normally what it was when he, when he would ask me something like that. And I said, what? He said, uh, I would like for you to take over an institution as warden. <laughs> I swear to God, I don't think I'd... <laughs> Thank you for understanding the, the, the tremendous value, not only for me, but the symbolic value for anybody who's ever felt like they could never get somewhere. Yeah, I, I, uh, I'm sponsoring a young anesthesiologist right now, and a wonderful young man. And uh, he got himself confused with his patients a little too much. And, <laughs> uh, and so... <laughs> So he sort of excommunicated from his profession at the moment, and, uh, and, he, and he's just absolutely convinced that he'll never be an anesthesiologist again, and that's exactly what he wants to be. And every time he expresses that absolute, total negativism, I say, remember who you're talking to. And he said, yeah, maybe I can make it. <laughs> maybe I, but that's, that's what I did for the next 20 years. I, I was a warden, and... Uh, it's an interesting job. I wouldn't want to do it again. It's a <laughs> tough job. I'm still in corrections, but I'm in a different capacity now, and I'm, I'm no longer running an institution. I'm working statewide now. And, uh, but it's still, it's, 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 uh, it's uh, my profession. Obviously, it means a lot to me. The, um, the, that's not who I am, though. Who, who I am, I'm just a regular guy. I'm an, I'm an ordinary guy who's had some truly extraordinary things happen. I mean, that's just a couple of things. My God, my life has been absolutely brought alive with things beyond my imagination. And, uh, it is something else, man. If, if you haven't seen it yet, hang on. Hang on. If you'll give your life to this program, you'll be amazed before you're halfway through. You truly will. And, and that's been, been my experience. You know, I'm just an average guy. I live in a little old town, Virgo town. And, uh, but it's my town. Yeah, it's my town. And I'm a citizen, a good citizen in that town. Pay taxes. I, I, I vote. I vote every time the doors open. I, I don't even know who's running sometimes, but I vote anyway. Because <laughs> I remember when I couldn't vote. I, I truly value that privilege, and I do that. The uh, mayor called me, and I, yeah, that's some the mayor calling a dude like me and saying, I really want you to support me. I said, All right. Big guy. <laughs> no, it's a good feeling, and, and, I, and we have, have that little wife. I, I met her up in Canada, and I was a pretty cynical guy. I, I won't elaborate on this, but if you've been there, you'll know what I'm talking about. Somebody, I don't know what you did in the relationship meeting. I wasn't fortunate enough to get there, 
but I think that was something that's chronically troubling to many of us. I had never had a truly committed relationship with a person in my life until I got sober in Alcoholics Anonymous. And that was true with any human being. So relationships means a whole lot more than getting hot to trot. You know, it means something about how we hook up with those about us. And I'd never, and particularly when it came to women, I'd never, I'd been involved with, with a few women in, in, over the years. And uh, I had never made an honest-to-God commitment to a single one. I mean, I'd, I'd fallen madly in love, and I'd gotten frenzied in the process and done all kinds of stuff and bought lavish gifts. But I never had turned loose completely. I always had a little something holding on, just deep down. I met this little gal. <laughs> she was working for the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. And, uh, and she got her man, I'll tell you. She, she got <laughs> And I, I had the beautiful experience of truly falling in love with a human being and asking her to let me be her husband, and she did. And, uh, and we've had a good marriage. We've got a couple of kids. Uh, one of them, both of them went bad. God, they were airhead kids. I swear they were. <laughs> and there's just something tre tre tremendously interesting about teenage people. Uh, they, uh, and my daughter... Uh, I tried to get her to take up something decent when she went to uh, to uh, Carolina, but she got <laughs> went into psychology, right, uh, of all things. I wanted to get into mechanics or something, you know. I, geez. And my son went to went uh, went off to, um, to NC State, and uh, he, he majored in fraternity. I I truly thought <laughs> I truly thought he had the makings of a good member. But he went bad, too. He decided in the second year to start school. <laughs> and, and, uh, and literally in three years, he got his grades up adequately to get into medical school. And uh, so he finished medical school now, and he's wrapping up. He's a senior resident up in uh, uh, Christiana Hospital up in uh, Delaware. He's delivering little Yankee babies about a dozen. <laughs> <laughs> That's something, you know, I mean, if you've got a, you heard who I am tonight. You know, those are not the kinds of things you ever aspire to happen. You know, I'm just tremendously grateful that I was able to be there, to be there, and to be able. You know, we were just rich enough that we, we qualified for no assistance and just poor enough that we needed to. But, <laughs> but I'm grateful that we were able to, uh, to see those kids through there and help them to they will do what parents are supposed to do. And a tremendous, tremendous debt of gratitude that I have there. The last thing I'll say, I, I jotted down something. I, I, it's not notes particularly, but, you know, and Joe, I know you ponder this sometimes. When, when you get older in the program, you, you worry sometimes about your utility, and people worry about what to do with us. And I'm somebody who I've got some, some vision for the rest of my life. Uh, yeah, I want to. I want to. I want to uh, stay sober for the rest of my life, one day at a time. And I believe that this program is more powerful than illness. And if I practice these principles, I'll do that. And like the man said in the book, if I keep doing like I'm doing and so forth, that'll happen. So I want to do that. 
But more than that, or in addition to that, I want to live till I die. Now, not everybody does that. There are a lot of people who are still walking around sucking air, and that's about it. <laughs> and I don't want to do that. You know, I don't want to die before I die. I tell you that one of the most depressing things I run I don't, I don't, it doesn't depress me much because I don't hang out there much. But I just deplore getting around some of my compatriots from the First World War. And they want to regale me with stories of what we used to do. And I swear to God, that is the dullest thing that I can possibly... I mean, they were wonderful memories. And if I'm just shooting the bull and telling war stories, I don't mind that. But I don't want to waste my time in reliving the past. I don't have time for that junk. You know, that's not staying alive. That's living in the past. And I don't want to live there. I want to richly honor it in my life. But it's sad to me when people, conversation is riddled with nothing except remember what we used to do. Well, if it's so doggone important, why aren't we doing it now? You see, I don't want to be that guy who's a walking archives. Yeah. I want to be a guy who is dynamically involved in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. We were talking at dinner about what keeps a brain alive. I know people ten years younger than me who are old folks. I don't want to live forever, but I want to live till I die. And I want to get some things done that are important to me. I'd put down just a couple. I want to be an example. I want to be an example. I want to be an example so that when I tell you that I've been here 42 years, I want to look like somebody who has had 42 years worth of valuable experience. I don't want to be a bitter, negative old man who's throwing rocks at stuff. I want to be an example of what recovery can mean that a young person can aspire to. I want to be current. I want to be active in Alcoholics Anonymous. My belief is that this program lasts as long as we use it and not another second. There is no stay in power. So I want to stay current in Alcoholics Anonymous. I want to be now. I believe very much in the power of now. Yesterday has little Tomorrow, almost none. Now is everything. And so I want to be current in, in Alcoholics Anonymous. I want to give leadership. Now, I don't want to be the boss like Betsy, but I want to, but I want to, be, a, I want to be a credible leader. And leadership is not a dirty word. I'll guarantee you that the Atlanta Roundup didn't happen without leadership and a bunch of it. Somebody has to do something with a bunch like us, otherwise we're just a gang. <laughs> leadership makes a difference, and it's not a dirty word in alcohol. The tradition says our leaders are, but trusted servant, but they are. I'll tell you, if you uh, want to be a leader, there's a sure test for it. Look around and see if anybody's following. <laughs> if they ain't following, you ain't leading. I'll guarantee you that. 
I want to be attentive to what's going on. If somebody talks to me, I want to listen to what they say. I don't want to be preoccupied with nine other things. I want to listen to what they have to say. The little girl's here, the little girl, she's probably 30 years old. I'm horrible with names, I mean ages. They said she wanted to talk with me with some things about AA, and I haven't gotten to that. But I want to get to that if I can, because I want to, <laughs> excuse me, I want to pay attention to that. Give my attention. That's the most important gift I can give, is attentive listening to another human being. I want to do that. Let me mention one other thing about leadership. You know, it's real easy to become a victim in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I'm not talking about fragile stages of recovery. I see old-timers who become, keep pointing to Joe because he's older than me, who become victims in their later golden years of recovery. You see them when they are talking about how the groups have become something different. And they no longer give the kind of stuff we used to have. Well, I'll tell you what it comes down to with me. And it's about leadership. Let me just put it to you. If, if when you go to AA, if you're not seeing what you want to see, if you're not seeing what you want to see, then you do what you want to see done. You do it. If you... <laughs> and that's the surest way to make it happen. You know, for example, Brookings and I were talking about the meetings when you go into meetings, and I swear to you, I mean, I, I value any gathering of alcoholics, some more than others. And when I go into a meeting and it's open with who's got a problem, I swear to God, my heart drops every single time. And I say, oh, Jesus, here we go. With, with an hour of amateur psychiatry focused on one egocentric person. And, and my heart drops. I never leave. I'd rather fight inside the tent than out. And so... What I do, and I never chew people out. That's not my job. I'm not an AA policeman. It's not my job. What I do is sit there, and if they're crazy enough to call on me, <laughs> what I do is act like I'm blind, deaf, and dumb up to that point. And then I begin to share about anything that has to do with recovery. I don't care what it is. I don't care what it makes any sense. I don't care if people look at me funny and say, didn't you hear what we're talking about? I tried my best not to hear it. And I'll tell you the amazing thing that happens, the meeting is almost never the same. Because I'm not the only frustrated guy in there. If most people want something different. Meetings are about solutions. They're not about wallowing in the problem. And <laughs> so, last, uh, well, let me let me let me just just you know, jump. Some of that. I've got a bunch of things there, but I, let me just jump to, to what it all comes down to. 
I guess what I'm saying in so many words. I, you know, I've got concerns about Alcoholics Anonymous. Everybody does this been here very long. We've got a very, very tenuous hold on this thing, and I hope to God that, 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 that we'll keep it together. You know, my job, the way I see it, is to see that the next boy girl who walks into this deal that I've gotten in contact with gets as good as I got. How could I justify less? So that's my job, by whatever it takes. And there, there are things that, that I can do, and I want to mention four things that, that I can do. Because I'm one guy, that's all, just like you are one person. But by golly, you're one, and so am I. I can be a member. I can be the best member that I know how to be. Brookings and I were talking about the financial entanglements we have at international conferences. And I want to know more about that so that I'm informed enough to have an opinion. I want to be a good member who takes time to understand the issues of what our fellowship's about. A good member. The second thing I want to do is be a part of a group, a real group. I honestly believe that solid, purposeful groups are the greatest need in Alcoholics Anonymous. That's where stuff happens. It not only is good for the structure of our fellowship, but I'll tell you what it means to me. I don't care how good I might be individually. I'm no better than the group that I represent. Because when I take a drunk to a meeting, I've got to be counting on that group to deliver what I promised. And if I don't have a good group, it won't happen. My most important work, I do a lot of stuff in Alcoholics Anonymous. I do this kind of thing a lot. My most important work is what Bev was talking about in a little different context. My most important work is what I do at my home group. I'll be there Monday night, and I'll be trolling for drunks. That's what I do. I hang out and troll for drunks, and that's my most important job. So I can do that. A group is vitally important to me personally and to this thing. I can sponsor. I sponsor as many people. I don't even know how many people I sponsor, all of them that, ask, that, that, that we've made the agreement with. However many that is, I've never counted up. It's a gang of folks. So I sponsor folk. I'll tell you one interesting thing about sponsorship. A young fella came to me, a young fella with 13 years of sobriety, came to me, asked me to sponsor him. I said, okay. We met. I said, tell me about your current sponsorship deal. And he said, well, I've got to terminate it. And he told me about it, told me about why. Finally, he said, do you want to know who it is? And I said, no, not particularly, but if you want to tell me, it's all right. So he told me. Now, you ain't going to believe this, but it's the truth. Thirteen years of sobriety. This fellow's sponsor was a non-alcoholic counselor in a treatment center. And I didn't blow up or anything. I just sort of sat there and calmly ate my grits. And then finally, when I settled back down, I said, let me suggest something to you. He said, what? I said, perhaps you have never had an AA sponsor. What you had was the world's longest aftercare contract. <laughs> Would it surprise you to know that after 13 years, this never fellow never had a home group? Would that surprise you? That he had never sponsored a single person? That he had never done anything that could be remotely related to service? He and I had a little agreement about what we would do. Two years later, I'll tell you this. 
That guy's sponsoring a bunch of folks. He's got a home group, and I guarantee he'll fight for that sucker. He's our <laughs> brand new GSR. And he'll tell you that he has come alive in Alcoholics Anonymous. And service is the heart and soul of it. If you want to be happy, joyous, and free, if you want your life to really be one that you enjoy, let me invite you to the world of service. Because as far as I'm concerned, the rocket that puts you in the fourth dimension is called service. Guys, it's great to be with you. Thanks very much.